Hello, and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast, a space where we explore the gray areas and intersections of science, ethics, and social justice. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate liberation activist, I believe social progress and justice depend on bringing science and ethics together for a holistic and nuanced approach to creating a compassionate and sustainable world for all beings. Well, I know it has been quite a while, but welcome back to season two. Since wrapping up the first season in January, I have launched two new big projects that I want to quickly tell you about before delving into today's episode. The first project is the Worldwide Vegan Climate March that I co-founded and am co-organizing and will be taking place May 6th, 2023, which you can find out more about and even sign up to become a regional organizer by visiting our website, veganclimatemarch.org. And the second project is my vegan van tour that I am officially starting this week, where I will be living and traveling in my vegan educational camper van, doing speaking and activism along the way. If you'd like to learn more about either of these projects or want to make sure that you don't miss any updates or announcements, head over to my website, bornvegan.org, and sign up for my email list. Now, for today's episode, I am so excited to share a conversation with you that I had with Victoria Moran about navigating when and how scientific evidence or spirituality should guide our food choices and ethical decision-making. This is a topic that I've personally struggled to navigate at times or make sense of, as I tend to be very evidence-based in the work that I do and am drawn to more evidence-based information, but I also really value and appreciate what a more spiritual perspective can offer in my life and how grounded and free it makes me feel. I thought Victoria would be the perfect person to discuss this topic with, as she is a longtime ethical vegan, spiritual yogi, and the best-selling author of 13 books, including Creating a Charmed Life, The Love Powered Diet, and The Iconic Main Street Vegan. Victoria is also an inspirational speaker, holistic health counselor, podcast host, and film producer. She's even appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and her articles and work have been featured in Yoga Journal, Natural Health, Women's Day, Martha Stewart's Whole Living, USA Today, Glamour, and more. In this conversation, Victoria and I discuss her background with spirituality, ethical veganism, and how she navigates these issues, and when and how she lets scientific evidence or her spirituality and things like intuitive eating guide her decision-making. I really enjoyed hearing what she had to say, and I think you will too. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. I am so honored to be sitting here with you and having this conversation today. Oh, I'm the one who's honored because I remember when you were a fetus. (laughs) (laughs) And what you're doing out in the world is just so impressive. It's just really, really cool to be with you. Oh, well, thank you. I, I look up to everything you do as a big inspiration as well. So um, for people who aren't familiar with your work, can you start off by sharing like a little bit about your background, your spiritual journey, um, (laughs) who you are? 
Oh, yeah. You know, this used to be shorter, but now that I am over 70, I really have to focus on keeping it short. So I was a very weird little kid. I had my first spiritual experience in a stroller. So I was just under three because we moved on my third birthday. And my nanny had me out at nighttime, probably because my parents were having an argument. And it was dark and the stars were out. And I remember just looking up from the stroller at the stars and thinking very matter-of-factly, well, that's home. And I'm here now, and I'm doing this, and there is nothing wrong with it, but it is not home. And I think I grew up thinking that that was how all little kids thought, and I'm not sure that it is, but that gives you kind of an idea. Then um, the vegetarian thing came into my consciousness when I was five years old. I came home from first grade with the four food groups, which for people who didn't uh, live through those. It was very animal-centered. The implication was that half the food you eat is supposed to come from animals. So you did have the fruit and vegetable group and the bread and cereal group. And then the other two, the other half was the meat group and the dairy group. So I was very proud that I had learned this and, and came home to my nanny, who was really my first spiritual teacher. And I recited the four food groups. And she said, <coughs> I know people who never eat any meat, and they're called vegetarians. And I remember thinking, ooh, that's cool. Where am I going to learn all this stuff? And I already had an idea. I wasn't going to get it in school. So that was a fascination. And then later on, I'd been through lots of different kind of spiritual ideas. I was supposed to be raised Catholic, but my parents were pretty eclectic too, and we went to all kinds of churches and synagogues and all kinds of weddings and funerals and whatnot. And so I had this really strong idea that everybody was trying to get to the same place. And then my dad was a doctor, so I did have some of that science part coming in too, although he was an old-time osteopath. So even though this was at that kind of turning time for the osteopathic profession when they were getting very, very allopathic, they were doing, and, and still do, you know, the, right now DO and MD is pretty much interchangeable. But at that time, a lot more emphasis was placed on diet and um, manipulation of the body and this kind of thing. So it was this very interesting juxtaposition of kind of natural health and science. And I remember when I was a little bitty kid, on the back of my dad's business cards, he had mucus-forming foods. He was a oh, sinus wow. specialist. <laughs> And I remember one of them, it was G-L-U-T-E-N, and I thought that was glutton. And I thought it meant that if you ate too much, you would have mm. a lot of colds, which is probably true. So um, at 17, I discovered yoga and read all three books on the subject in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. And that was another boost toward the vegetarian thing because they all said, if you want to be serious about yoga, you will stop eating animals. Then I moved to London where everything opened up. There was a lot going on in London on the spiritual scene and the yoga scene and the vegetarian scene. Now, obviously, veganism had been founded there some 28 years earlier. Not even that much. I was there in 1968. I know oh, that wow. sounds like, <laughs> you know, total historicity. Uh, but they had vegetarian restaurants, and it was, it was a thing. 
you know, it was it was not something alien and, and odd. So I started taking yoga classes there, came back to the States, ended up working for almost two years in the library of the Theosophical Society's headquarters, which was a spiritual, very eclectic kind of Eastern thought organization founded in, in the late 1800s and eventually got a degree in comparative religions, uh, religious studies from a little uh, private Methodist university near Chicago. And in that experience, I earned a fellowship for foreign study, which took me back to England to study vegans. Because at that time, there were so few of them in the US, there were more in the UK, and they were closer together. Mm -hmm. So I did that research, and that became my first book, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. That was published in 1985. And it's just all kept building. And when I look at my life today, lo, these many years later, I'm doing so much of the same thing. So I've written a whole bunch of books, and they're probably half and half vegan and spirituality. And I train vegan coaches, and I do a podcast for 10 years. It was all vegan. Now it's kind of women's spirituality, except most of the women are vegan. <laughs> so it's, it's just interesting, I think, to step onto your life path, kind of like you'd step onto one of those moving walkways at the airport and just see where it takes you. At least that's what I've done. That's so beautiful. And I love how spirituality and yoga and vegetarian and then veganism were all sort of woven together for you. It's true. And I look for the weavings all the time. I mean, even now, like I wrote a book, actually, my best selling book was called Creating a Charmed Life. And one of the chapters in there talks about your free square. Mm -hmm. So what is it that there is in your personality, in your character, that just comes easy? And maybe it's a gift or a talent, maybe you're a good singer or something like that. Or maybe it's just a little knack that is so much a part of you that you don't even really appreciate it, and yet somebody looking at you from the outside really would. I called it the free square, like the free square in a, a bingo card. And in my life, that is meeting people. It's running into people, connecting with people. They're helpful people or people who need help. Sometimes they're famous people. I mean, it's just absolutely uncanny to me that I met Muhammad Ali in a hotel lobby in Kansas City. And you know, I met Michael Moore walking down the street, and this was when my publisher didn't like the name Main Street Vegan for my book that gave me everything that I've been doing for the past 10 years. Uh -huh. Well, he liked the title, and he talked to my editor and talked her into letting me have that title. <laughs> wow. You know, how do these things happen? Well, that's my free square. And so I think if we all kind of figure out what that is for us and use that, then amazing things happen. I love that. I really do. So what I kind of want to get into then now is where was there more? You talked about it early on with your dad and being an osteopath, but was there more science? Like when you started researching vegetarian and then veganism, were you just like spiritually, you know, this is my calling, compassion, were you ever afraid of if that was healthy? Like, did you ever start sort of 
looking for evidence or science to back that up? Was that ever part of your journey? Yeah, I knew it was my spiritual path. The ethics were always very clear. It was very difficult for me to get from vegetarian to vegan because I had an active binge eating disorder. And there were times when it was just really out of control. I, I believe that I absolutely had no more control over what I ate during those periods than a heroin addict has over shooting up. And then when I would get past that and mea culpa and, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And I'd try to get back on track. Then everybody was saying, you need high protein. You need egg white omelets and nonfat plain yogurt. <laughs> so it was, it was really tough. But eventually what happened for me was that I got into a 12-step program for overeating, and it, as our 12-step programs, it was very spiritual. And what I saw was that there had been a hole in my spiritual life. I was real spiritual until it came to, I need to eat for a fix. And then I just shoved all that spiritual stuff to the side, and I was in control. So once I was working that 12-step program and really knew that as long as I was within what they call fit spiritual condition, I could make choices about what to eat and I could choose to be vegan. Now, you asked if I worried about health and stuff like that. Well, I'd always dealt with weight. My weight went up and down. I was very often quite overweight, but it was kind of like I thought of my body as an accordion. Mm. <laughs> I kept going in and out. And so I was concerned when I went vegan that I would never lose any weight because I was eating all those carbs. <laughs> but I lost the 60 pounds and it's gone. I mean, it's been gone for 38 years. And this was the first time in my life that I had ever lost weight without dieting. And also the only time in my life that I ever lost weight and it didn't come back. So I did start reading a lot of the science that was available at, at that time. So John McDougall was newly on the scene. I read all of that. Prior to that, I had done a lot with natural hygiene, which is now the American Health Association. And that went way back into the 1800s with the idea of what we today call a whole foods plant exclusive diet. Mm -hmm. So I was impressed and bolstered by the scientific evidence that this was a rational and reasonable way to eat and way to live, that would never have kept me with it if it hadn't been for my feeling for animals and the ethical side of veganism. I recall a few years ago, Dr. Michael Greger, whom I absolutely adore, as just about everybody does, had said, why would you make food choices based on anything other than looking at the science. And I remember thinking, that is so you, Dr. <laughs> Greger. And for me, it's so much more about intuition. So even to this day, I'm very interested at this point, and I'm finding it really helpful at this phase of life, in Ayurveda. So Ayurveda is really interesting because it is still recognized as a viable healing modality by the World Health Organization, but it's 5,000 years old. And I think a lot of people would say, we've learned a lot in all these years. Why are you paying attention to something that somebody said that long ago? Well, 
that's because that's the kind of person I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> that part where it's it's scientific in that it came from intensive research of very brilliant people at a very different time in history. But it has been sustained and evolved through this time period. And I trust something time-tested like that more than I do the latest study because the latest study is very often debunked by the next study. Mm. I think that's such an important thing to think about and what you mentioned about the studies because there's so much confusion in the nutrition world. People are like, oh, this study said this. No, I have a study. I was talking with some people the other night and I mentioned a study about, you know, eating eggs. Someone was saying eggs are very healthy and I, you know, mentioned a study about the cholesterol and they're like, yeah, but, you know, I have, you know, like what's one study? I have a study that says the opposite (laughs) and just like throwing that out there. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's part of the purpose of this podcast and, and our conversation, but there are these times where intuition or spirituality conflict with the science, you know? So how do you navigate that? Have you had any experiences where you feel like the science is saying one thing and your intuition or spirituality is saying something else? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I do tend to go with the intuition. First, I want to just mention what you were saying about science and all all of the confusion. I'm not a scientist, so I don't really know if in paleontology they're having all of these arguments about (laughs) is this a rock or is this a fossil? I don't know. But in nutrition, it doesn't seem what I as a layperson have been told science is. My understanding is that science is to test hypotheses and discern facts. But either that hasn't been done in nutrition or people don't want to believe that it's been done because there are so many conflicting views. There may be as many conflicting views about nutrition as there are about religion. And they're not just a little bit conflicting. They're they're vastly conflicting at times. And what I read is from the whole food plant-based point of view because that's where I am. And I find that that's helpful for living life. I learned that when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was reading everything about how to be a mom and how to be pregnant and how to raise a baby. And it was making me nuts because just like in nutrition, there was, at least at that time, a huge array of different ways that people believed children should be raised. So bring the baby to bed. Never bring the baby to bed. (laughs) Let the baby cry. Never let the baby cry. Have the baby skin to skin on you 24 hours a day. And divergent views, just like we're finding in nutrition. And rather than read everything and really feel schizophrenic, I went with my heart, and my heart was with the bring the baby to bed, don't let the baby cry. And so that's the path I chose, and it's very similar with the the nutrition. I choose to be vegan because it is the ethical thing to do. I am thrilled that it is also a really healthy thing to do. Now, if I were not an ethical vegan and I was looking at everything in all sides, I don't know. Maybe I would see some value in some of the things that non 
plant-based nutrition people say. But because I'm not going to eat that anyway, even if there is something good about it. So I just stick with what makes sense to me. Now, if I were doing journalism about this, if I were doing research, then I'd really have to be much more open. I'd have to look at everything and look at everybody. But basically, it's about my own life and the life of my family. And so I read our stuff. I read nutritionfacts.org. I read how not to die. And so far, I haven't died. So I think something's working right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's, I'd say that's pretty similar to my approach to things like, you know, there's these YouTube channels out there about vegan deterioration and trying to like claim that, you know, long-term vegans deteriorate. I'm like, I know plenty of them that are thriving. I've been vegan my whole life. I think I'm doing fine. But in the case that I were to develop some health issue or something, which I think we wouldn't be able to know whether that's from being vegan my whole life or any other host of possible things that could cause something, I would, because I'm so dedicated to the ethics, I would seek out every possible vegan supplement, like like that would trump, you know, everything else because I also have this belief that it is healthy and it is possible to do this in a healthy way. Whereas I know some other people that get very swayed they have one one issue it's like it must be the vegan diet and I'm gonna go with the science or I'm gonna you know and they they get lost there well I think it's difficult to be a minority by choice and that's what we are when we choose to eat this way so we don't have the backing of tradition and cultural norms because if somebody gets sick and they've been doing everything the way that everyone in their community is doing it, there is great understanding. Well, gosh, you know, you're just like us, and we didn't get sick, and it's bad luck. And you know how nice that people are accepted by their communities. That's a good thing about being human. But I think that when we make a different choice, we sometimes get really nervous about it. And it must be the diet. It, if, if I get a headache, if I'm tired, if I get two colds in a winter, it must be because I'm vegan. But wait a minute, back when you were eating animal products, were you ever tired? Did you ever have a headache? Did you ever get two colds in a winter? And people, when they're eating the way they've always eaten, they don't think it's the food. Even in these cases that there is wide acceptance, such as uh, cholesterol, heart disease, that kind of thing, that it really is the food, a lot of people will say, but I really eat pretty well. Yeah. Okay, so talking about, you know, intuition or following our, you know, the spirituality versus, you know, following the science, what are your thoughts on people who say things like, I just had to listen to my body and my body told me to eat meat or my, my spiritual guides, my ancestors want me to, you know, eat animals. How, what do you think about that? When I talk about intuition, I hope I'm really getting in touch with my soul, which is what I think of as inner oneness with all beings, the love that connects all of us. 
So I can't imagine that that would ever tell me to harm another being. And if it did, I might go see a good therapist just to see what I was interpreting as intuition. The idea of listening to the body and doing what it tells you can be really tricky. And I say this as a former food addict because I know what my body used to tell me to eat. And it was very, very unwise. So I think that a wonderful combination of good sense and the desire to be as kind as possible in an imperfect world is a really good way to figure out what to eat and probably do a lot of other things. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, I think I tend to lean personally more on the science and evidence side than the intuition side, probably because I've heard <laughs> so many comments like this from people that get frustrating. But yeah, my response is similar. It's like, uh, yeah, someone who's addicted to nicotine or smoking cigarettes, I'm sure their body is telling them to go smoke another cigarette. And we know really well that that is not healthy and not good for you. Yeah, and they, they did a study quite a while ago with children around age three. And they found that if the kids had only eaten natural foods, probably not vegan, but not highly processed foods, not a lot of salt or sugar, that when given an array of foods over a period of a week, they would just choose, with no adult interference, a very good diet. But when they did the same study with children who had been having French fries and candy bars and things like that, they were just all over the place. They, they made choices, but they weren't choices that filled their, their nutritional um, requirements. So I think it's the same with us. And possibly, if you've been eating real food for a long time, you really can trust what's coming from the body. But I'm happy to know <laughs> some of the science, too just to give me a little bit of, of guidelines. I think it's beautiful how nature has designed foods so that all animals are attracted to the ones that work for their species. The foods that are so wonderful for us with all the antioxidants have beautiful colors that we're attracted to when a lot of beings of other species don't even see those colors. So they don't need to be attracted to the blueberries and the strawberries and the gooseberries. That's not relevant for them, but it's relevant for us. And so I think there is something to be said for that intuitive element. But we've gotten very far from nature. So I think a combination is prudent. Absolutely. And I think that's where I would say my more spiritual perspective comes in, is I look at you know, diet and lifestyle. And I think it is just so telling that the way of living that is best for animals and doesn't harm other innocent beings also, to me, when I look at the science, happens to be the healthiest and the most sustainable for everyone, everywhere, you know, the whole planet. And it's like, that's spiritually, that's saying something to me. That's like, I can, I can say, I don't want to harm animals. And it's backed up by all of these other scientific benefits. It's stunning to me, and it's shocking that more people don't get it mm -hmm. or don't want to get it, and I guess that's the old cognitive dissonance rearing its ugly head. But 
it's such a beautiful thing. And the yogi in me comes out, it's all very karmic that in not harming others, you tend to get back health, generally speaking. I mean, this is a very difficult planet. And we come here with genetics from way back when. We don't know what our ancestors were doing or what they were exposed to. And we have everything that we've done all our lives. Many of us can look back at certain points of our lives and say, oh my gosh, I did that. Well, yeah, (laughs) we did. And so people get sick. And I think something else that happens as we get into the older age ranges is it's actually normal and right for the body to start to be less and the spirit to become more. Because even though we want to have that that short window of morbidity at the end of life, we certainly don't want to spend 20 years being sick, which is very, very common in our culture with people eating and living conventionally. But on the other hand, at a certain point, one comes to realize that we're on our way out. And so to me, it's just a matter of, of accepting things that change and looking at that in a kind of dispassionate way. I had a, a lesson from my cat, Bobby. He had a kitty condo, which had three layers, and he loved to jump on it. And he could jump all the way from the floor to the very top layer. I seemed to feel very proud of himself when he did that. <laughs> and when he was around 15, maybe, getting up there for a cat, one day he went to jump on his kitty condo, and he didn't make it and he fell. He didn't hurt himself, but he seemed embarrassed. Now, maybe I'm making him into a human and giving him human (laughs) traits, but he seemed kind of embarrassed to me. And a few hours later, he tried again, and he didn't make it that time either. He never tried to get on that piece of equipment again, even the lower level that wouldn't require any jumping. And I would swear to you that when he walked past it, he wouldn't even look at it. That was in my past. Now I'm doing something else. And I remember that because things go. So I remember when high heels went because I just got to the point where that was no longer a comfortable thing. And certain kinds of things that I used to do at the gym. You know, there's an injury here and there's an injury there. So I don't do that thing anymore, but still live actively and excitedly and with anticipation, but also kind of accepting the the waves of life, the kinds of ups and downs and the cycles and the patterns. So for me, that's part of approaching it spiritually, even though... I am certainly also trying to do all the things that the plant-based doctors talk about in terms of food and exercise and supplementation and the superfood here and there (laughs) to just see if there might be a little magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all probably prone to that, and I especially see it in some of the more extreme dieting, raw food, plant-based or paleo or keto or carnal in all sectors, 
I think a lot of people are looking for that magical diet that will make them invincible, that will keep them alive forever. And they shift around from one extreme to another, hoping that they're going to like have this superhuman strength or invincibility. And, and some of these people go on to give up you know, eating plants because they, that, they feel like that didn't work. And I, I see that and I'm like, I think you're hoping for something that's probably not possible and you're putting too much, you know, into that when we're all going to leave this planet at some point. Yeah, I think it's wonderful to live a healthy lifestyle. It's, it's foolhardy not to. And it's also very selfish because eventually we're going to be dependent on others and why not make that as far in the future as possible for a short amount of time as possible? So we do our very best. Now, one of my pet peeves is in the plant-based community, it's so difficult for people who do become ill to maintain their self-esteem because they feel that they have somehow gone against the great, wonderful promise of this way of eating, and they don't even want to share with other people when the fact is we're all vulnerable nobody ever said that eating plants would make you invincible and yet we want to make the best choices that we can for ourselves every day and sometimes that's going to differ some people believe more in raw foods and some people believe more in cooked foods I happen to believe in raw food in the summer and cooked food in the winter. <laughs> it's just kind of how I roll with it. But I think it's very important to put food in its place. For me, I think about food as much as I do because of being vegan mm -hmm. and because the world isn't vegan. So if I'm going out to eat and I'm not at a vegan restaurant, I have to scroll through <laughs> and see what I can eat. It's uh -huh. a little bit more thought than probably a conventional eater would, would put into food. And yet, I don't want to go crazy thinking about food. I would rather go crazy thinking about how can I make the world better. And certainly I want to eat in a way that does that as well. When I was 19 years old, I remember going to a meeting of the Vedanta Society in Kansas City and leafing through some literature there and finding a quote from Sri Ramakrishna, a great yogi who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said, don't make your kitchen your church. Now, he was very vegetarian and all of that, so it wasn't that he had no standards in terms of food, but still, don't make your kitchen your church. And I think that when people really believe that eating in a certain way is going to make them immortal or invincible, they're really signing up for heartache. <laughs> Yeah, that I, I would agree, I think. I mean, and the way I put it from a sometimes scientific perspective is I think food is really great at helping, preventing, even curing food-related illnesses. But there are lots of other causes, environmental factors, social stressors, and I don't think food, like I think food is good at fixing what food caused. If you were eating a poor diet and you you know, that caused you health issues, eating plants and a healthier diet can fix that. If you were exposed to a chemical toxin in your job, diet may not be able to do anything for that. Yes. 
Oh, I think that's very true. And I learned something similar in, in dealing with my eating disorder because I had always tried to fix it with what caused it. Well, I eat too much. I eat the wrong foods. I can't stand my body. I can't stand my life. Therefore, I'm going to find different foods and different amounts of foods and different ways of eating and different times of eating, and that's going to fix it. And what I learned for myself is that because for me this was an emotional and spiritual disease, I needed to be fixed from the inside so that I could make those good choices. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm curious, have you ever, like when talking to people about spirituality, have you ever gotten criticism or run into people who think what you're doing isn't scientific or isn't evidence-based or sort of criticize your way of approaching things? They haven't said that to my face, and I think that's because I'm sort of this revered elder, and if people are going to disagree with me, they will do it behind my back or online. (laughs) (laughs) So I haven't really run into that, and I think that's because I'm not anti-science. I find the studies that support lifestyle medicine and plant-based eating utterly fascinating. I I love quoting them. And so I I think I'm very compatible with science. I'm certainly not um, trying to choose foods based on mythology. And I do think when you talked about some of the extreme dietary choices, I think there is some of that. And you'll see, for example, people saying, well, you can get B12 from mushrooms or spirulina or something like that when it's simply not reliably found in those foods. And when we look at the statistics on people who are eating plant-exclusive diets who do not thrive, who do not do as well as the other people in the studies, it's unusual because usually the vegans are A plus and they're out ahead of everybody. Sometimes they're not. And whenever that is the case, it's in a population that hasn't been supplementing vitamin B12. It's such an easy thing to do. And so when I run into people that say, oh no, you wanna have blue-green algae, it's like have blue-green algae if you want it, but don't expect it to give you your, your B12. I just heard from someone the other day who was saying, oh yes, there's a vegan that I, I've been studying with and he's working on becoming a breatharian. And I'm thinking, well, he's gonna have to work a really long time because all kinds of people have claimed to be able to live without food and no one has ever done it. There are a lot, again, in in the religious world, there are all Uh kinds of people who have said that that's what they did, but no one has ever been shown definitively to have managed that. So it's already considered very odd to be vegan. So let's keep some of the further oddities to ourselves. And I'm all for experimenting and doing whatever you want to do with your own life to see if you can find something that nobody has ever found before. But let's not bring it into the conversation because we have a reputation to maintain. Well, thank you for that. Um, And I, I very much agree in terms of what I promote. Like I may 
try, you know, I've tried things like intermittent fasting, raw, you know, strictly no SOS, you know, salt, oil, sugar, unprocessed. And, but when I talk to people about veganism, I generally don't promote any of those particular things. I don't like go out of my way to call people out, you know, like I've tried them, but I, I try to promote the most sustainable ethical way of living as the baseline, including those supplements like B12, which is absolutely important. And I think too, we have to look at people when we're talking with them, when they're a little bit veg curious or even just politely asking questions, we need to see how they relate to food. So I've come up with a concept that I call food styles. I wrote a blog post about that if people want to look it up. So before anyone approaches veganism, they already have a food style. So maybe they're a foodie. Maybe they just love food. Food is really interesting to them. They like trying all kinds of new foods. They like cooking. And maybe somebody else is a traditionalist. And they really like eating the way that their parents fed them and what seems to be the way that their culture or or their nationality eats And they like to stay close to that kind of of traditional way of doing things. There are other people that are hipsters, and they'll eat anything and go anywhere to eat it as long as it's the cool thing to do at the moment. And then you've got the naturalists. And in the vegan world, this would be a lot of the raw fooders, people growing sprouts, people growing microgreens, picking their own fruit. And then in the omnivorous world, Some people are doing that kind of stuff, but they may also be hunting. But what they have in common is they believe this is the natural way of doing things. And there are some other food styles as well. And if we can just get a sense of where people are coming from and not try to tell a gourmet person they're supposed to be a naturalist or a traditional person that they're supposed to do something that is contrary to their tradition, we just get so much further. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So in the context of this whole conversation we've been having since the podcast is called The Science is Gray Podcast, um, what what does that mean to you? What, is, what does the term science is gray mean when you hear it? When I first heard it, I was in the dark. I, I wasn't really sure. But as I've thought about it over these 24 hours, <laughs> it's... It says to me that science is in process and that what we know today contradicts what we knew 20 years ago and what we'll know 20 years from now contradicts what we know today. So that doesn't mean that it's bad. It means it's very, very good because it keeps pushing us forward into truth and light. But we're in the hallway now. We're still learning and looking and figuring out, I guess I would say as someone with a spiritual take on things, we're coming to see, as someone said, Einstein said, I know people say that Einstein says a lot of things he didn't say, but supposedly Einstein said, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest is commentary. And I really think that at its best, that's what science is doing. And as long as we hold it to its highest standards and not get too caught up 
and what it may be telling us now that might change, I think it's right on time doing fine, as are we. I love that. Science is, is trying to, you said it's trying to understand or hear God's thoughts. Yeah. As for all these centuries, as we've been trying to explain life and explain meaning, and when you think about the things today that everybody just accepts, you know, from gravity to relativity, this is amazing. And that people have devoted their lives to coming to know what's really going on on this planet. And sometimes it's just academic, it's just knowledge, it's fascinating and interesting, and oh, isn't that cool? And other times it's very applicable to making life better. And then, of course, the other part when you get into science is gray is when I think about the animal testing and this kind of thing, where to get information that may be good, that may be helpful, that may be useful, I think very often is not good, is not helpful, is not useful. Many beings have suffered. Many lives have been lost. And we know, of course, historically, that has not been only um, non-human animals. It's, it's been humans as well. So I think that to stay on the um, brighter uh, shade of gray, <laughs> science needs to really be looking at that. And, you know, it's because of science that we have all these alternatives. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be doing vivisection like people believed that they needed to do 300 years ago. We need to be past that. And I think when I get a little bit impatient with science is it's supposed to be pushing us out into a brighter future. It's supposed to be bringing us from the mire of the past Thank into you so much. this I'm so glad we got to do this and I love hearing world, all of your insights but and when experience. It wants to cling to something like vivisection. Well, that's just keeping us in the dark. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, everything you said spot on and and the way I think about it is science is a very useful tool and it's still prone to human flaws and our paradigms that are in the dark so we have to apply our moral framework or spiritual framework to how we use and apply science in society so yeah it's unethical to be testing on animals today that's like but that's our human morality and justice lens saying you know people too right we've done lots of horrible things to people in the past and most people wouldn't use science to defend that today but we did in the past so is there anything else you would like to add at the end of this conversation? Oh, and where can people find you? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll just stick with that part. So people can find me at MainStreetVegan.com. And that's spelled out like Main Street in a small town vegan. And what we talk about there is the Main Street Vegan Academy program, which has been going for 10 years. We have graduates in 33 countries on six continents who are trained and certified as vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And in addition to coaching and working with people and writing and podcasting, they're also uh, starting businesses and have thriving businesses in everything from vegan cheese and ice cream to bed and breakfasts and vegan cowboy boots. So do check us out, MainStreetVegan.com. And let's see, where else can you find me? I have a brand new, a 
about to be up, and I think it will be live whenever you hear this, victoriamoran.com, and that is my site as an author. And you can also find me on Instagram at both Victoria Moran Author and Main Street Vegan. So I've got a lot of uh, Insta going on. And uh, I also have the podcast, the Victoria Moran Podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women, which you can find on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this. And I love hearing all of your insights and experience. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode or enjoying the podcast in general and want to help support me and my work, you can leave a rating and review in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening.